a long story, but... In this episode, we're going to chat with my dear friend, Annie Caruso, a doctoral candidate at the University of Oregon, an archaeologist by training, who's doing incredible work to decolonize the discipline through ethnography with subaltern source communities. Most of what we know about the discipline of archaeology comes from popular culture. Most people would likely agree that Indiana Jones and Lara Croft are the two most famous archaeologists, both fictional characters. And what makes them compelling or exciting enough to boast large franchises is the intense dramatization of the discipline of archaeology. As an undergraduate anthropology major, the umbrella discipline for some archaeology programs, I took a class called Temples, Treasures, and Tombs. The class was an introduction to archaeology and provided an overview of archaeology from various regions, the Andes, Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Near East, all providing a neat story of the region's past through excavation and scientific testing of material culture. Material culture is simple. It's the stuff a culture makes, uses, or cares about, literally physical objects. For example, the material objects required to make this podcast include the microphone that I'm speaking into, the computer I'm using to create the episode, and the device you will utilize to access it. Material culture is everywhere, always, and for archaeologists, it's the best way to understand the past. In my Introduction Archaeology course, we learned about the extravagant burials, religious ceremonies, human sacrifice, and profound monuments. But we also talked a lot about what most archaeologists do, focus on the everyday. Much of what is left at any archaeological site is ordinary, or at least it was to those who used it. The profound discoveries, such as Howard Carter's discovery of King Tut's tomb, are rare, partially because of tomb raiders, but more so because not everyone was King Tut. Most people in any organized population will be ordinary, working and subsisting like most other people around them. The things that they leave behind allow for archaeologists to piece together what life might have been like, and through the extraordinarily rare discovery, like a rich burial, a religious pilgrimage site, or a unique object, more can be gleamed about human prehistory. So if the archaeologists that we know are the dramatized characters, focusing only on the profound and rare, what do real working archaeologists do, and why does it matter? There are thousands of archaeologists working across the globe each day. This work can be through organizations, nonprofits, museums, or universities. Their work is often utilized for presentation in museums and cultural centers to provide the history as gleaned through the investigation of material culture found via excavation. This work is disseminated in various ways, for museums and cultural centers in the form of exhibits, for nonprofits and other organizations in presentations or printed materials, and for most academics through publication in peer-reviewed journals. Most of these are siloed, and that restricts the general public's ability to access the archaeologist's work. But you might ask, what about television? And you're right, there's lots of examples of archaeology being presented to the public. But I'll ask you, 
what projects are featured. I've seen hundreds of hours of docu-series on Egypt, Mesopotamia, and the Near East, but I've seen very little on Peruvian archaeology or even American archaeology. There are flashpoints that pique the interest of the general public, mummies, Vikings, the archaeology surrounding the history of Jesus Christ, or human evolution. These topics are shared widely and are most likely the kinds of archaeology an average non-academic has access to, given they have a television or the internet. These are the things that we assign relevance to. Though there is archaeology happening everywhere, teams of people all hyper-specialized with unique and specific questions are digging into the earth and removing pieces of material culture that may be a piece to the puzzle that they're working towards understanding. But what happens when people come from far away, another country, another continent, with questions about your culture? What would you do if a group of people, unfamiliar to you, began digging on your property, in your public spaces, unearthing the bodies of your ancestors, taking them, their things, and whatever else they find back? What happens when these people begin to name places and things that already have names? Why are these people from faraway places deciding your history and your culture? Why aren't you a part of this process? These are the questions that Annie was asking and what led her to her research.
But why archaeology? How did Annie get started? So how does one study the impact of archaeological practice? NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, was enacted on November 16, 1990. The act requires all federal agencies and institutions that receive federal funding to return Native American cultural items to the descendants and culturally affiliated tribes or organizations. NAGPRA was huge, as it legally enforced cultural items to be returned to their cultural owners, rather than held by federal agencies or universities. Many long-standing cases of human remains and cultural objects that were taken unlawfully from Native American homelands now had legal standing to be returned rather than be displayed or more often held in storage, though the process is slow and cumbersome. The United States government has, for as long as the state has existed, created laws written to intentionally disenfranchise populations indigenous to North America. While NAGPRA was a huge win for Native American tribes, it only enforces repatriation of federally recognized tribal materials, 
meaning tribes or cultural groups that have not completed or do not fulfill the exhaustive and extensive requirements for tribal recognition, have no legal rights to reclaiming their cultural objects or ancestors. Additionally, NAGPRA is only applicable on federal lands, which means anything found on state or privately owned lands is not required to be returned. NAGPRA was and is incredibly controversial. There's tension between the scientific community who carry a desire to learn from these excavated remains and objects and the humanitarian perspective of human rights to their own culture, history, and ancestors. And because of the inherent colonial practices of the United States government in relation to indigenous populations and North American tribes, compliance with NAGPRA can be intensely complicated. The Kennewick Man is one such example. A skeleton found on July 28, 1996, near Kennewick, Washington, was claimed by the federally recognized Umatilla, Colville, Yakima, and Nez Perce tribes. Each claimed him as an ancestor and sought to rebury him. Kennewick, Washington is recognized as the ancestral lands of the Umatilla, though because of the historical enactment of laws to remove, erase, and assimilate Native peoples, the legality of ancestral homelands is complex. Populations were intermixed, moved, and forced onto reservations through colonization and the enactment of Manifest Destiny, the movement West. Thus, many archaeologists insisted that due to the Kennewick man's age, dated to be about 8.9 to 9,000 years old, there was not enough evidence to link him to any specific federally recognized tribe. Scientists also argued that his great age made him incredibly valuable to the scientific community. While DNA testing has proven that the Kennewick man is most genetically related to native North American populations, it wasn't until 2016 that the House and Senate passed legislation to return the skeletal remains to the Coalition of Columbia Basin Tribes, including the Confederated Tribes of Colville Reservation, the Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakima Nation, the Nez Perce Tribes, the Confederation of the Umatilla Reservation, and the Wanapum Band of Priest Rapids for reburial according to their traditions. The Kennewick man was reburied on February 18, 2017, more than 20 years after his exhumation via excavation. 200 members of five Columbia Basin tribes were present. The location was undisclosed. Nagpra and the Kennewick man are one example of the ways that decolonial thought began to pulse in the discipline of archaeology.
So what about Annie and her research? Surely she isn't exempt from this process either. So what does Annie's work look like? How does one do ethnography in subaltern communities?
What does this look like in the big picture? How do we get more archaeologists to care about decolonizing the field?
So archaeology is a colonial discipline, born of the curiosity of the privileged few, academics with questions and a sense of entitlement to answer them. Academia has long been a place for the elite and privileged, those who are benefiting from their studies and without much concern for the consequences of their research. Archaeologists are storytellers, and archaeology is subjective. Their work is biased by their own interests, their backgrounds, and their culture. The questions we ask as people are informed by our lived experience. So if archaeologists are storytellers, why aren't the host communities they work in part of telling that story? As we move towards a more human-centered focus, how does one ensure their research is conducted ethically?
Thank you for listening. I appreciate your support on this new project. I love to hear from y'all, so reach out on social media or email me at longstorypod at gmail.com. This podcast should be available on the listening platform of your choice, and if it isn't, let me know. Head over to that platform, rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help. Again, I'm truly grateful for your support. Until next time.